welcome to the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. ED Senior Reporter here, Matt Mace, speaking to you from our usual location in West Sussex. Coming up on this show, we head to the offices of, well, Ripe Office to discuss a circular office approach to embedding sustainability in the workplace. In the wider audience, remanufacturing is not particularly well understood. But, but once they learn about that, see the quality, then the fact that you can save money and have an environmental saving of 80%, roughly, in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, energy, water use, biodiversity loss um, through the supply chain, all of those sorts of things are really attractive. And we don our black tie outfits at the House of Commons for Viola's National Apprentice of the Year Award ceremony, where we speak to the waste specialists on the importance of nurturing human growth. It helps us bridging the skills gap. Mm. Uh, that we have already in this country and it's likely that we'll have even more so in the next few years to come. Uh, so we focus some of our apprentices therefore in the STEM, uh, so the technical, engineer, mechanical training because it's really what we're missing the most. So yes, hello everyone. Um, we're here on a bright but rather chilly um, afternoon in our, in our usual location actually swapped the room to get a bit of a nicer backdrop. There's no more metal sparks, got a nice nice little sunset um, and, and some nice waves and a beach. Uh, the reality is far less glamorous. Um, but this episode is here to provide a bit of warmth to your day. And on top of those two interviews you've just had a glimpse of, I've also got sat along beside me um, a man who strangely seems quite refreshed and focused when you consider the fact that he's been a uh, Spent a large portion of the last few weeks caked in mud and listening to the Pet Shop Boys. Um, Mr George Ogilvy, how are you? Yes, uh, very well, thanks Matthew. Um, it's good to be here. Seems like an absolute age since we were last here. Um, it feels rather strange, in fact, not to be here with the founding father of the ED podcast. I know, I was, I was about to say something felt, like, something felt off about this. It was, mm. I thought it was a change room at first, but I realised that wasn't it. And as you mentioned, yeah... Um, we're a man down. Uh, a big part of us is is gone um, temporarily. We we should at you know um, uh, Luke Nichols, uh, ED editor, of course, is um, swanning about in in the US right now, um, either soaking in the sun or or escaping the uh, the floods and the hurricanes, depending mm. on whereabouts he is right about now. Mm. But sustainability and ED stops for no man, and this show must go on. So, George, um, it's fair to say, in Luke's absence, we've had a pretty busy few weeks. To say the least. <laughs> exactly. And whilst I'm sure Luke's uh, holiday is, is well-earned, um, we've, been, we've been hard at work. You know, August has always been a bit of a lull news-wise, but as soon as September rolls around, so do the news stories. So, um What's taken your, what's caught your eye in the last week or so? Mm, right, so there's been a couple of uh, developments really. Um, the first one actually uh, comes from a couple of hours ago. I was on the phone to uh, Chris Davis, who I'm sure you're well aware of, is the International Director of Corporate Responsibility at Body Shop. Mm-hmm. Um, so for the listeners who aren't aware, Body Shop this week has just been taken over by a Brazilian cosmetics firm called Natura. Uh, I wasn't too aware about this firm beforehand or their sustainability credentials, but I spoke to Chris and he said he was over the moon by the huh. deal. Seems by the sound of it that Naturo are on the same wavelength with Body Shop in terms of their sustainability and ethics. Um, so he was really impressed by how in the first meeting in the boardroom, they, uh, the executives were there and expressing their vision, which was a shared culture and a shared you know, vision for sustainability. He was really heartened by this fact. Um, you know, Body Shop, he was the first to admit, has been suffering 
from declining sales in the last few years, and this is perhaps down to maybe a dilution of their environmental responsibilities. But he was he was clear to state the fact that they're in a better place now that they've had this um, deal take place, um, and they're well on course to be well their big vision to be the most sustainable company in the world. It's it's interesting the fact that this deal comes just a few months after the failed takeover of Unilever. Of course, yeah. So. There was a there was a takeover approach from Kraft, Heinz, and Paul Pullman actually refused flat out, insisted there was no appetite from the boardroom level. Um, and what that really says to me is like we're at a turning point now. Um, you know, we've got a growing trend within the business community. Uh, boardroom executives now favouring this long-lasting responsibility uh, over short-term profits. That was really exciting mm. to see. Um, the other thing which I thought we couldn't really skirt over is in the transport sector. We can't go a day now without some car manufacturer announcing they're expanding their EV portfolio. So over the last few weeks we've had JLR, Volvo, Uber, all bound to produce new EV models. Uh, this week was a turn of VW, you know, the former uh, villain of yeah, the diesel exactly game scandal. The, essentially the company that, the, that started this trend inadvertently, yeah. Mm. So, um, yeah, it's interesting that... Dieselgate scandal, which shook the confidence of the entire industry, now seems a distant memory. Um, VW this week vowed to produce an EV version of each vehicle by 2030. And so when you see these sort of developments alongside commitments by governments, the UK and Scotland, both uh, committed to phase out petrol mm-hmm. vehicle cars, it's great to see businesses stepping up the gear, if you pardon the pun, in uh, transforming the industry. It's weird. I'm, I'm, I, I say I'm close to these stories. I'm not close to these stories. All I did was write them up. But um, in in that sense, I, I had a different view. I I, I remember you were you were away, um, you know, kicking yourself in mud in a field somewhere, pouring down the rain. I, I for once I didn't actually envy you. Um, but uh, you were away, and yeah, like you said, a day didn't go by about one of these huge new amount, announcements coming in. And at the time, my, my thought was, oh, this is another write up. They've got to do this now. This is a really big story. But yeah, you. you take a couple of steps back and you realise that this is an entire sector shift. Mm. It's, it's not it was just one or two companies, you know, it's not just a, a Nissan doing it anymore. It is all, you know, all the usual suspects essentially, all grouping together and deciding it and it's all good. 2030 for, um, I think it's for VW, isn't it? 2019 for Volvo. Mm. It, it sounds, you know, that's not far off at all and it makes you wonder, um, you know, price-wise and certainly charging infrastructure-wise, are, you know, that's a real leap of faith because I don't think consumers are fully on board with it yet. I, you know, I should be on board with it. I, I report about this stuff, but the idea of, you know, having to wait half an hour in a select spot to charge mm. a, a car, which I can't afford, right now doesn't appeal to me. So there's there's certainly some barriers they're going to mm. have to overcome and it's going to be really interesting to see how they do it. I know the scrappage scheme, which I personally feel is just a bit of a cash grab mm. um, is, is a good way of doing it and certainly test the waters up to December but I think yeah that's um, it's the biggest trend note so far and, and it's amazing how, how quick they react to one another as well it's like one two three all in a row the dominoes are falling and all these car manufacturers are placing their bets in the EV market which you know sustainability wise is amazing but you know like we said it, it crops up some few issues that they all need to tackle as well but I think they are doing it there's aren't there Ford and um, Mercedes are all kind of grouping together on charging infrastructure mm. across Europe but they've just got to essentially get a move on with that it's pointless having all these products if no one's going to go near them because we've got nothing to do with them the um, the body shop thing sounds really interesting Chris Chris Davis is a, a really interesting person to speak to regular on this podcast in fact, in fact I think if we'd put him on there he would have been there 
due the hat-trick ball, so to speak. So um, that'll be a, a really, really interesting feature. And um, listeners, do look out for that on the site because I'm sure it will be an extremely interesting uh, read. Even though we are a little bit thinly spread on the news desk at the moment, um, that hasn't stopped us from getting out and about, um, talking to the people we feel we need to talk to. Um, and at the beginning of this month, George, you paid a little visit to the House of Commons, didn't you? Care to, care to fill us in on that? That's right. Um, just at the start of this month, I was invited to attend the House of Commons, which is always a privilege, you know, get the opportunity to put your glad rags on. Yeah, rub shoulders with the greats. That's right. I did, I did actually brush past Vince Cable. I was going to uh, maybe ask him about uh, Lib Dem's um, plan for the sustainable future, but I think he was busy being uh, interviewed by radio, so I thought I wouldn't butt in there. <laughs> Um, no, so as I said, it's always a pleasure to go to the House of Commons and on this particular occasion um, we're in a prestigious setting for a very noble and good cause. It was um, Veolia, uh, the waste management firm. Uh, they were there to recognise the important role of new talent in this business. Um, so they had the company's third national apprenticeship of the year scheme um, and this was their award ceremony. At Westminster. So I had the opportunity to speak to their senior executive vice president, Estelle Brashlianoff. Um, hope I got that right, Estelle. <laughs> Please don't kill me if I didn't. But it was a very interesting conversation. She spoke to me on a variety of subjects, but mainly about uh, the need for businesses to diversify their workforce, you know, to nurture the next generation of CSR leaders. Um, interested in the fact that she is in fact, one of four women on Viola's executive board. Um, and she shows that this highlights that the sector is very different from uh, a long time ago when it used to be very traditional, you know, mm. people with a certain age, type, and professional background. So, looking around that room in Westminster, it was very heartening to see, you know, Viola is helping to equip the young people of different backgrounds with technical skills uh, required to help, you know, re resolve some of the world's most challenging problems. Like climate change and resource scarcity so um, yeah this is the chat with Estelle and I hope you enjoy it. Okay well um, as you mentioned we're going to play out for you in full now um, it was a bit brief I believe you uh, you got ushered uh, ushered into the ceremony relatively quickly so um, I think towards the end of this it's, it's not a giant it's just a, a man with a microphone starts uh, starts booming around in the background but it doesn't take away uh, from the insight that, uh, that Estelle has to share so here's that interview for you to listen to now in full. So hi Estelle, um, thank you for inviting us along today to oh, the award ceremony. Um, so maybe you could just start off giving a brief overview of the apprenticeship scheme and how it fits into Beolia's core ethos and values. So we have had uh, for now years and years an apprenticeship uh, scheme, um, which is, um, I would say, has many merits. Uh, it's absolutely needed, it's great for the company, it's great for the apprentices. So it's really a win-win here. We, uh, we have uh, an objective which is very clear, which is to have more than 300 apprentices a year. So it means we have a very, very big ambition there. And we are meeting this target basically every year, so 300 every year. Uh, in terms of for the company, it helps us uh, meeting, you know, like uh, two things, probably the diversity, which goes with creativity and innovation and thinking differently, because, you know, those people come from different profile and background, which is great. Uh, and the second thing is, it helps us bridging the skills gap 
mm. uh, that we have already in this country and it's likely that we'll have even more so in the next few years to come. Uh, so we focus some of our apprenticeships therefore in the STEM, uh, so the technical, engineer, mechanical training because it's really what we're missing the most. So it's really good for the apprentices, but good for us as well as an organisation. Sure. I think what this serves to show is that apprentices, young people, want a company that has good CSR credentials. But we're not necessarily seeing this everywhere. And I've spoken to a few industry uh, leaders and they're saying they've raised concerns that CSR is in danger of becoming you know, another elite uh, job role for someone of a certain background or, you know type of it or age. Um, so I mean, I suppose what would your message be to these businesses that maybe will only look at recruiting people uh, who've got a master's degree or, you know, looking to promote people from with, only within the company? I suppose your message, is it um, to look beyond graduates, uh, to promote the next leaders of the next generation? I, I think, you know, like uh, my, my main message would be don't think it's here just for I would say the CSR washing, uh, if I may be absolutely frank. Uh, it's nothing to do with it, it's great for the organization again. So have a look, what are your needs? Uh, and usually you have a lot more needs than just recruiting the same people again and again and again forever. Mm. Uh, because if you want to reinvest your business, and I cannot see any business which now doesn't have to innovate and try to move faster in today's world, mm. uh, then you have to have different people around the table. and. Uh, uh, diversity is a way to get there. So diversity of profile, diversity of age, diversity of social background, diversity of gender, uh, you name it. So it's absolutely critical to, for an organization to succeed, to get there. Uh, and again, you know, you have some skills you're probably missing anyways, so let's train them yourself so you fulfill your needs. Mm. I don't think it's nothing to do with CSI in a way. You don't. I think it's just business needs and good business. Mm. Oh, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, so this all forms part of Veolia's plan to become a, a company at the forefront of the resource revolution. Uh, just looking at your CSR report, there's some like, very good progress being made. 20% uh, of the business or more now is operating through a circular economy approach. But I saw uh, your comments in the, uh, upon the launch of the report and you said we need to be even bolder in realising uh, the opportunity that the circular economy uh, presents for the UK. So how exactly does Veolia go about doing this in the next uh, few months and years? So I think you know you, you, you started your comment by young people want to join an organization which has some CSR credential. It's not the way I feel it. I think they want to uh, join a company which has a purpose. Uh, that's the, more, the way I see it. And the reason why we do all that in Veolia is because we want to restore the world. We have part of the solution, actually, of course, only part of it. We need partnership, we need customers to develop the solution, uh, but we don't develop more and more uh, because then it helps tackling some of the major uh, issues our planet faces, which is scarcity of natural resource and global warming. So let's do more of that. Uh, and I think it's exactly why people are joining our organization, hopefully. Uh, so uh, what are we doing typically? So we, we've you know, expanded our circular economy solution, which are part of the solution we have, uh, together with uh, resource efficiency. Um, so we, uh, we, for instance, you know, are trying to mine the waste and try to see uh, is there anything which can have value for somebody else or another company? And we found a lot of things. The power from an energy from waste plant is now used to cool some data centers nearby. 
It's not something you could have thought of uh, years and years mm. ago. Uh, we can produce plastic out of human sludge mm. as opposed to out of oil. And I can multiply the examples like that. So let's do them and it's good business as well. Mm -hmm. um, about, I think it was just under a year ago, uh, Viola released a report uh, which talked about companies in the biggest sectors in the country who are sitting on a, is it four billion hidden mine uh, that could be unlocked by transitioning to a circular economy. Since then, we've seen companies uh, stepping up towards, towards a more circular approach. Uh, only like in the last week or so, We've seen HP launch a closed uh, loop recyclable uh, printer. Jaguar Land Rover expanded its closed loop uh, aluminium recycling program. So, how have you view viewed the progress in the last year? Are companies doing enough? And if not, what steps need to be taken? Of course, they can do more. And of course, they are doing more. Not for CSR reason, neither for, I don't know, like, you know. Uh, only, I would say, green reason, but because it makes, again, good business sense for them. Uh, there is more and more like of those closing loops, uh, but I would say you see more and more companies trying to offer services as opposed to sell products, and that's part of the solution as well. Uh, then you have a whole series of things about, you know, trying to use less to produce the same outcome. It's exactly the type of solution we offer to our industrial customers. The pharmaceutical company, typically, we help them to use this energy to produce exactly the same number of pills every day in the same factory. That's a combination of all those. Are we uh, at the maximum potential? No, we're not. So all those companies want to embark more and more. It's fair to say, uh, by doing that, you know, there is some technical solution to found, and that's why we invest in R&D. There are more companies to convince and I would say, you know, we have to get to the SME level as well, and the supply chain of those big organizations you've just mentioned. If we keep it only to the big blue ship, uh, we won't get there. So really need to, to spread the word that, you know what, you know, it can make sense for you, mm -hmm. even though you're not a very, very large big company. Um, um, just lastly, I'd like to touch upon the point of plastic waste, which seems to be the big issue at the moment. Um, so, I mean, the UK's recycling rates for plastic bottles is, is uh, stagnating, while you, other European countries, uh, you know, you've got 90% recycling rates for plastic bottles. Um, a lot of industry experts have commented on maybe the need for uh, regulation through plastic bottle tax or deposit retur return scheme, which we actually saw the Scottish government implement um, yesterday. Is this the sort of thing that you think needs to be taken? It's a lot of combinations here. Uh, from the consumer's perspective, uh, there is an element of try to make it easy to understand for people uh, to know what to recycle. So what's recyclable and what's not? What do I put in which bin? Uh, and there is a lot to do in trying to simplify their life and have the same type of methodology ever in the country, as opposed to if you go from a London borough and you move to another one, you won't have the same things in the same bins. So it's totally very, very difficult to understand for everybody. So there is an element of simplification here of the message uh, from the consumer perspective. Uh, from the uh, people who design those products, there is an element of eco-design as well. Okay, well, I think that's time up. So thank you very much, Estelle. Thank you. There you go. And it's, uh, it seems to be a real growing trend of companies that are really starting to act with these, these kind of future mega trends, I think, that are, that are cropping around. It's, it's really important that the likes of Veolia um, and NG Bailey, a company I interviewed um, for the website uh, a month or two ago, are really going down this apprenticeship route to equip the next generation of workers with skills to tackle to tackle future trends. I notice um, Estelle seemed to really want to 
you know, emphasise the fact that this isn't a CSR story. It's it's not a, a light and fluffy greenwashing aspect of it. It's something they really believe in. Did at the ceremony did you get the sense that this was you know, this was something that they were not just extremely proud of, but they realised it was critical to the success of their business. That's exactly how it did feel. You know, it wasn't just, we're doing this to um, give a good story or like or some su- superficial um, reality. It was that we need these um, apprentices for the future of our business to survive. And when you put it in that perspective, you think, well, this is, yeah, this is critical. So and and Veolia, their their kind of I suppose tagline is is to resource the world, and um, it was it was interesting that um, that conversation came up did because I I've been delving into the world of the circular economy over the last uh, couple of months. Uh, you know, HP summit um, earlier on. I had a chat with the um, corporate leaders group Prince of Wales about kind of resource productivity just uh, just this week, in fact, and. Um, Ironically, this next interview is actually quite a linear approach because the next interviewee was a person I met at the um, Business in the Community event back in July. This event was hosted at JLL's offices in London on Warwick Street and I I have a bittersweet relationship with these offices. I've been to them twice. First, second time, sorry, was to speak to um, JLL's head of UK sustainability, Sophie Walker, for a Green Room uh, podcast episode, which was uh, really insightful. Um, But the first time I went there, was for this circular offices event and, and essentially got sent to the wrong area of London, got sent to their uh, Walbrook offices, which was completely empty and I sat around for a good half an hour thinking I'd got the wrong date. Eventually though, I'm sure you will be glad to know, I, I got to the right place and it was really insightful discussion. You had the likes of Interserve, Lloyds, obviously JLL were there as well, um, really talking about embedding the circular economy into, into the office place. And, you know, they did these presentations, Sophie Walker did this really interesting thing about viewing viewing offices as like bank vaults and how everything's got a value to it so if we were in this office now that whiteboard over there would have value so would this phone so would um so would these i don't even know what they're called like pictures of of waves they'd all have a, a value that could be reused and it was a really interesting mind shift for myself personally and anyway during the q a um a man called uh, greg lavery stood up and essentially encouraged people to visit his london uh, showroom where he essentially, his, his thing which immediately hooked me and I was like, that's interesting, was that, uh, you know, everything in this showroom is remanufactured, recycled, it is a circular office. So uh, for those of you who don't know, Greg is the director of Ripe Office and they, that's essentially what they do, they, they champion the circular economy, they champion remanufacturing of, of predominantly furniture for, for business use. And after numerous diary conflicts, um, we eventually got some time, um, he invited me to his London showroom and we were there to discuss the current market for remanufactured and closed-loop products. We spoke about these relatively new types of initiatives, um, and not only how they open the doors to business models, but also how they open the minds of the boardroom, if you can present it in a way that has no risks attached to it, which um, Greg, as a, someone who's very passionate about his business, and that model in particular, does very, very well. Um, now, I'll disclose this. I originally had this, this kind of introduction mapped out where... Um, almost kind of news beat in it's like I'd be opening and not slamming doors but shutting doors and turning on taps and stuff like that you know how they do it to make it give a bit more oomph and make it a bit more kind of you know scenic in that sense and I was going to do it at the at the actual offices but turns out Ripe Office uh, they take they take their whole remanufacturing thing quite seriously and they're very busy at it so if I had tried that you would have just essentially heard sawing and um, hammering of nails etc nevertheless it's still an extremely insightful chat which you can listen to now in full. 
I'm here um, just off of Park Royale in London with Greg Lavery, the director of Ripe Office. Uh, Greg, thank you very much for inviting me into a rather neat and tidy um, looking office. And I have to admit, I was looking around and a, a few of the items look uh, rather familiar. The, um, the carpet tiles in particular are very vibrant and they, they, look, they look like something we've covered before at ED. So I was wondering if you could just tell me a bit about this office and what makes it so special in that sense. Yeah, so, so this office, um, we have taken a circular office approach to this and so all of our carpet tiles that you just mentioned are out of the fabulous interface showroom in Clerkenwell so when they changed over for Clerkenwell Design Week um, we took uh, their old tiles and, and made them our own in the office obviously they've been cleaned up uh, and they look fabulous um, all of the rest of our IT equipment is uh, remanufactured and reused uh, our desks and furniture, obviously that's what we focus on, that's remanufactured too. Um, and even our fridge, we've, uh, we've got a ripe frig, a fridge, sort of smeg-like, ripe on the front of that as well. Um, and, and we've covered that in uh, car vinyl wrap, um, which is a sort of fun thing to do, brings a bit of colour into the office as well. So yeah, we've, we've got a 100% circular office here, we're really proud of that as well. And that is, uh, I suppose, your your business model, in its basic form, is is giving circular options to, to businesses for, for their office and furniture use. So um, I suppose, how, how is that being perceived by business at the moment? Is there a strong demand for it? Is it a case of people going looking at it for the waste aspect or, or are there other values to this business model that you can offer? Right, and what we find is customers come from a couple of perspectives. Sometimes they're just after value for money. Sometimes they've got a real social or environmental sustainability agenda. And, and what we find is, once they learn about us and they see the quality, which is of course why we have a showroom and why we spend a lot of time coming up with grades of quality, which we have, explaining to customers the real, um, how I suppose remanufacturing differs from refurbishment. So refurbishment can just be a, a, a sort of clean and polish, if you like, uh, or a reupholstering, whereas remanufacturing at its basics takes an element, a furniture element, back to its core parts um, that are long life, checks those, resurfaces those, and then rebuilds with elements around that that have been refurbished or, or are new in order to give you as good as new. And that's something that customers don't really know about. That's not beyond the sustainability community. Obviously, all of, all of your uh, audiences are sustainability experts. But beyond, the, in the wider audience, remanufacturing is not particularly well understood. Uh, but, but once they learn about that, see the quality, then the fact that you can save money and have an environmental saving of 80% roughly in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, energy, water use, biodiversity loss um, through the supply chain, all of those sorts of things is really attractive. And then even we're trying to take that even further by using uh, long-term unemployed and disabled where we can to do the remanufacturing work. And so there's a cost saving, environmental sustainability benefit and social sustainability benefit. And, and our customers are loving that, which, is, which we've been very fortunate. That's helped our growth. And I think for a lot of businesses, they're, they're acutely aware of the circular economy, they're acutely aware of what it's meant to achieve, and I think they get the concept of it. Perhaps it's still um, at an early early stage in regards to actually transitioning to it. I think a lot of businesses and a lot of economies operate in a linear model. So um, for, for a business that's perhaps interested in introducing their first aspect of circular economy, or just you know it branching out into circular economy as a wider general, um, why should they look at kind of offices and, and furniture equipment as a, as a step that would make a difference when, I suppose, compared to perhaps their operations or their supply chains, it's a much less, um, it's a much smaller footprint? Right. Uh, and, and really good question. What we find is everyone's got an office. 
Um, and often those offices, the waste associated with those aren't counted in a zero waste to landfill footprint or audit that's done by an organisation. So they're sort of the forgotten little space, but on the other hand, um, they're very important to staff because that's where staff spend eight or, or nowadays 12 to 14 hours a day. Uh, it's where new recruits come in and get a taste for the company. Uh, it's where the senior executives sit and who may be sceptical of the ability of the circular economy to transform their business. Um, and, and it's a space that basically, it, it, there's, there's now an industry formed of which we're part that can help to circularise an office. So you don't have to do it yourself. So if you're an expert at making ice cream, for example, you don't have to become an expert in remanufacturing furniture, and yet you can transform your space and at the same time save money, reduce your waste. And, and one of the key things, and our starting point is, what furniture do you have right now? So actually you don't have to worry about moving furniture in and out, you don't have to worry about the waste from that, because often we can remanufacture that into smaller desks or whatever you need for your space. Uh, and that's a little bit transformative because you can have that in your head office, a, a change in what you do that can, can demonstrate how remanufacturing the circular economy can make a tangible impact on your business that then you can start to say, okay, for our ice cream plant out the back and in other locations around the world, what lessons can we learn from that that we can apply in our own operations? And it's, um, it's fair to say that some businesses you've already worked with are already experiencing those benefits. Um, uh, there's a couple of high-profile projects within the NHS. Um, obviously, Ripe Office is a benefactory of the RBS uh, Innovation Gateway project, which right. has then been extended uh, in a different model to come in. So how right. how has, um, I suppose, the conversations with, with people in charge of those initiatives changed compared to you trying to sell it to someone who's a little bit more... Um, questionable of the concept. Right, and, and what we find is that the, the innovation gateways and environmental gateways as they were in the case of Cummins have been really helpful because that gets us top level exposure, they see the model, they like the model and they say to their organisations make this happen and because they're powerful executives that are running big corporations um, that's really great for us, it opens doors and more importantly I think it opens minds because they, they then don't have to worry about any risk that might exist in that. And that gives us the ability to do trials, to demonstrate the capabilities of remanufactured furniture and flooring. Uh, they then see those and they say, great, no more barriers, we're now going to roll this out through the whole of our initially UK practices. Uh, and we've done that with RBS, that's been very helpful for us. We're doing branches all over the country. Uh, we're doing it now with Cummins, having won the, the, been one of the 2017 uh, award winners for that. Uh, and we hope to do that more with, with further gateways as they come across. And so far, um, from the projects I'm aware of, there's, there's a lot of um, stuff you're doing with public, the public sector, in essence, with the NHS, a lot of university work there. Um, is that because of the cost aspect of it, or are they just as clued up about sustainability as the private sector? And I suppose, is there any sector that this is particularly well suited for? Yeah, re all really good questions. Let me answer the first one. So we've had some really good discussions and projects with the NHS. Um, they're particularly concerned about value for money and sustainability, and you add to that the wellness aspect. Being the NHS, obviously that's top of mind for them. And what they really love is that they can get top quality ergonomic furniture at a bargain price. And that's really important because obviously they want beautiful offices for their staff, as do we. What remanufactured furniture gives them is that beautiful furniture, but a whole 
I suppose, peace of mind around the governance of that. So if, if someone from the media says, why are you sitting on a beautiful Vitra chair when you know, our hospitals are desperate for funding, they can say, hang on a minute, we paid a very low amount for that. In fact, less than we would have paid for a nasty contract chair with wobbly wooden <laughs> arms. You know the ones uh, yeah. you sat on them in, a, in, a, in every hospital yeah. that you go to, right? They're sitting on beautiful chairs that give them the right posture, that help their staff uh, to stay well, that help them learn about ergonomics as well. But most importantly, it means that um, they've got a great office that hasn't cost them much money. It is sustainable. It's giving back to the community through the use of um, disabled and long-term unemployed labour in that remanufacturing process. Uh, and, that able, and that's defensible for them under public scrutiny to say, look, we didn't pay very much for this. And in fact, it's a lot more sustainable than if we just bought straight brand new contract furniture made in China, for example. Okay, and um, it sounds uh, outside as if uh, everyone's hard at work doing some yeah, of this remanufacturing. Yeah, that's absolutely fine. That, it's good yeah. to see that there is a demand for this. But um, again, as, as I mentioned, relatively newish concepts at Cookonomy. Um, what kind of barriers are still in place that's really stopping this coming to the mainstream market? Uh, and the big, the big barrier, the big elephant in the room is perceptions, I think. A lot of people think remanufactured, I don't really understand that. It sounds like reused. Therefore, there is a compromise in quality. Um, and that then relegates us to a used furniture dealer in their minds. Uh, and we work really hard to try and, try and manage those perceptions. So we spend a lot of time educating people on what remanufactured furniture is, showing photos of, of projects that have gone well. Um, and, and they all have. Our customers are delighted. So we've got lots of testimonials that we, we roll out on our website. Uh, and the reason we set up this showroom that you're sitting in right now, and we'd invite everyone to come and have a look at that, is so that people can sit on and go, hmm, this doesn't smell. It's, it's beautiful <laughs> furniture. And, and right now you're sitting on a chair that billionaires have sat on because that came out of a private equity firm in the city of London. Um, they didn't want it because they were moving to a new office. They said, hey, look, we don't want this to go to waste. We said, fine, we'll find a good home for it. Um, so billionaires have sat on that chair, right? It's a beautiful piece of furniture, uh, hot, top quality leather. Um, so actually changing those perceptions is our biggest struggle. Um, but fortunately, there are some really forward-thinking individuals out there that say, I'm prepared to open my mind to this, have a think about it, come and see you. Um, and then armed with the photos and the evidence and the, the case studies and some uh, visits we can do to customers, they then go back to their management team and say, hey, this is doable. This is beautiful furniture and we're saving a mozza. It's, it's not too good to be true. It's, it's, it's for real. It's a real option. Um, and those sorts of individuals are really great for us because they're, they're our ambassadors and they're really moving the, the field of the circular economy onwards by their openness to these new ideas. Uh, yeah, um, the remanufacturing perception is, is a really interesting point. I think when I first started at ED, um, yeah, pretty much two years ago, my first, I think, conference I went to was a, hosted by Westminster about remanufacturing. And over the years, it's just kind of it's just kind of vanished. It's got a lot quieter to talk around that there was talks at the time about setting up some sort of like um, government or public body to really help. Is there a case that it needs more ambassadors outside of the um, working force to, to push this forward? Or Well, I, at the end of the day, there are a lot of people that are starting to understand remanufacturing and they're really useful um, for the whole industry because they're opening their minds to the ideas of remanufactured IT, refurbished computers, and they're really leading the charge to reducing resource use, 
reducing imports from the country, which of course affects our balance of payments, and basically making this whole nation a lot more resilient, finding local employment for people who used to not work in coal mines that nowadays are really struggling to find jobs. The remanufacturing industry is a perfect home for them. Uh, and the fact that people are grasping that um, all over the country is fantastic. Okay, and um, Greg, you know, thank you again um, very much for, for hosting me here. Um, coming to the end of the chat, I realise there's probably a lot of work you want to get on with, and uh, <laughs> um, as much as it is good fun to sit in this kind of billionaire's chair, um, I, I suppose on the concept of that of that chair, you know, that's a that's a unique selling point. Um, do, do you find this is a way to perhaps get the the general workforce on board with this idea as well? It's almost a, it's almost a story to tell in that aspect as well. Um, the fact that someone who works for the NHS can go in. Um, home from work and say, oh, they've just put in all this remanufactured stuff and it used to be X, Y, and Z. Is there any examples of well, that? Well, there's some fantastic examples. And, and this whole provenance, um, we're seeing that happen in all sorts of uh, product categories around the world. This idea that your coffee came from a Nigerian farmer, mm. the whole fair trade movement as well. We're doing a little bit of that, working with the Merthyr Tidville Institute for the Blind. They're now working with us to actually actively make the, the bases underneath sofas, for example, which they've always done, but you've never seen their brand. Mm. Um, so, so a classic example of the of, from the furniture side of things is uh, so there's a bunch of people at the NHS that are sitting on desks that were in the James Bond Spectre set, right? And, and oh, I first thought, I thought, I want one of those. Yeah, Thank definitely. You very much. How cool yeah. would that be to sit on a James Bond desk? And it was from the office that he sort of works in theoretically. So in 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 a surreal world, that's the desk that James Bond and his colleagues sat on, all the double O's. So that's a really cool concept. Uh, but but more than that, I I think there's this question of well, how good is new? And is, in fact, a piece of furniture with a good story behind it, is that better than new? Mm. Right? Okay. Because it's, it's a tried concept. We know it's lasted through its initial years. We know the mechanisms are great in this particular chair. We know it's proven it's won ergonomics awards. Is that actually better, especially if it's been on a James Bond set, than a piece of furniture that's fresh off the production line, brand new to the market, hasn't had all the bugs worn out of it? And, and is still costing the earth in terms of environmental resources that it's using. So I'd love to get into that whole concept of better than new mm. um, as a whole marketing campaign, potentially. And, and I think people are starting to think that. If, if it's better for the environment, better for society, and it costs me less, that could maybe just be, just be better than new. And I suppose as a final question then, just to kind of scan onto the horizon, is, is this a perception you see coming around relatively quickly? Um, is it a case of businesses like RBS and Cummins really, you know, are creating the the blueprints and examples for others to, to follow suit? Well, it, 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 there, there are no, there's no question we're early stages just in terms mm-hmm. of numbers of organisations that are open to the idea. Uh, but we're seeing, and to answer an earlier question, we're seeing interest from not-for-profits that don't have very much money right through to private equity mm-hmm. firms that do have lots of money that are saying, actually, look, it's just a whole lot of waste if we get rid of our old furniture. Can you help us to remanufacture what we've got? Um, and, and frankly, we didn't expect that spread because we thought, look, there's going to be some people that we won't be able to serve because they don't have enough money, but actually we were able to get our cost base low enough. And conversely, we thought the private equity guys, they just don't care about their furniture, but actually they do care about the planet and their furniture uh, and saving money, it turns out, as well. So what we found is enormous reception across all sorts of sectors, including schools, uh, universities, uh, private companies, uh, government organisations and charities. So that's been really pleasing. Let's just hope it continues. Okay, Greg. Well, um, it's been a pleasure to talk to you in this uh, closed uh, loop office of yours, but I will now be heading back to the the less circular office, uh, uh, Heedy headquarters. But thank you for your time. You're welcome. Thank you.
So yeah, there, there you go. Rykov has uh, done some extremely promising work already, with, especially with the public sector. The, the James Bond story in particular was, was one that quite excited me. Um, and I've always got this impression that the circular economy is this big buzzword around businesses, and they're all, they're all aware of it, they all know they should be doing it, and they all think, yes, that's where we'll go in the future. But I think, I'm under the impression that sometimes they just get stuck in their tracks, essentially, the technological barriers, policy barriers. But it's nice to see that companies like Wipe Office and like Veolia are, are actually, you know, going ahead with this 24-7, a lot of work going on behind the scenes to really, to really champion um, that area. Well, um, we're getting to the end of the podcast, and if I haven't mentioned it so far, um, I will mention that uh, usually noises that happen in this podcast, usually outside, there's usually some work going on, uh, someone in the car park is, you know, drilling into a new wall, or the lawn's being mowed. If you if you hear something that sounds like that, it's not a lawn mowing inside, it's just me sniffing or blowing my nose. I've, I've had a stinking cold all week. Um, I've probably spread it around half the office. I'm, I'm sure George is about to come down with something next, soon. The next episode, I'll be in the other <laughs> chair. Don't worry, it'll be me. Exactly. So um, that that's what's going on there. So um, no need to no need to worry about me though. I am I am on the mend. But um, yep. Other than that, there's been no real hiccups so far. There's been no fires to put out. Um, we're we're doing okay in in Luke's absence. Um, I could change the next five minutes because I'm I'm trusting George to kind of steer us home essentially. So um, don't let us down, George. But you've kind of taken on the political coverage of, of our site. It's something you, uh, you're quite passionate about. And, you know, government have recently just come back from, from their well-earned recess, depends on, on who you ask mm. about that. And I, I suppose, is, is there anything really to report on? So it has been quite a quiet week on the policy front. Um, it's probably down to the fact that, you know, ministers have just come back from their recess already in a week's time they've been going to their autumn conferences so it's just that sort of period in the middle at the moment when you think about occupied with brexit negotiations Mm. and whatnot um so it's quiet at the moment but i'd say it's the calm before the storm so for the last few months now uh, we've been expecting this big announcement from the government uh regarding their long-term plans for carbon reduction Mm -hmm. it's uh, we had the uh, decarbonisation plan, I can't remember what it was initially called, it's now called the Clean Growth Plan. And essentially, uh, this is the plan which is going to outline how the UK is going to meet its targets to um, reduce carbon up until the early 2030s. And it's faced several delays now. Um, ministers did say that it would be ready by September, we're now in September, um, coming to the end of September. <laughs> So it's about time it was released. Um, and what I will say is that businesses can't really afford to wait much longer. From what we've heard from a lot of sustainability professionals is that they need that long-term certainty. Mm. You know, If they're going to be able to invest in the tools to produce this l- low-carbon, resource-efficient economy. So we're hoping that this plan will come out and it will be ambitious in scope. You know, there are certain areas of policy which certainly need improvement. You look at transport for one, heat another. Um, so we're hoping, we're waiting in anticipation that this uh, plan will be announced in the next week or so. And when it is, we'll make sure that we're right on top of it. I remember when the fifth carbon um, budget was, was essentially published and the top we went was, um, you know, uh, a real kind of step forward, you know, relief for green businesses. It was essentially a framework for them to work to, and I think a lot of businesses could could use that right now. Mm. Um, but yeah, uh, there you go. Um, I suppose this is usually the point where where Luke asked me for my innovation of the week. But um, 
it feels a bit forced if I if I just start talking about it without a prompt. But I don't have a prompt, but I do have a prop. I've got my uh, my bag for life with me. It's got my, my weekly shop, which um, is essentially just pasta and, and various other cards. Not the healthiest thing, but um, that's that's what I'm doing at the moment. Um, yes, the bag for life. And that's because my innovation of the week is a, is a really simple one, essentially. Um, and it actually involves one of the companies we were talking about at the start of the show. So there you go. A nice circular podcast Ooh. for a circular economy theme. I like what you've done there. Yeah, man. multi-layered <laughs> podcast this. Um, yeah, essentially, uh, Veolia, uh, along with British papermaker James Cropper, um, they've reprocessed disposable coffee cup waste into, um, uh, for lack of a better term, the iconic yellow um, Selfridges ba- uh, bags. Um, so essentially, disposable cups, which you, you have your coffee in, they're upcycled into paper by James Cropper, and then they're converted into the yellow shopping bags. And the final product contains 20% of, of cup fibre. Um, it's it's a really simple innovation. It, it's no hyperloop. I think I did last week about these kind of floating trains that travel for like 400 miles an hour. But it's a really simple one that's here today and completely works. And, you know, coffee cups is, you know, is vogue right now, isn't it, for the sustainability sector? Everyone that loves a coffee cup story. It's a problem that was highlighted by the mainstream media. And it's good to see that not just the likes of Costa... Um, Starbucks have taken efforts to recycle more, but people are finding solutions elsewhere for them. So yeah, it's really simple. There's also a, an article on our website which goes into much more detail about it um, if you want to read more about that. So um, yeah, that's that's a wrap for the Sustainable Business Covered podcast this week. Um, we will be back very soon, uh, hopefully with a responsible retail special from one of our own events. I'm sure you can guess what that event is just from what I've told you. And um, on that note, if anyone listening has any suggestions, perhaps themes or even people you think we should feature on this uh, podcast, then um, I've been told you should email us at podcast at fav, fav-house.com. Um, I would also fling that across to our news desk account, newsdesk at fav-house.com, because I'm not entirely sure Luke has passed on the account info for that one, and we wouldn't want that to get locked out um, while he's enjoying himself. And, of course, uh, you can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes by searching for Sustainable Business Covered. Um, So, until next time, uh, I'm sure there's a silent goodbye from Luke somewhere in America right about now. And there's an audible goodbye from George. Goodbye. And a goodbye from me. Goodbye. Goodbye.